Good morning, church family. For it is wonderful to see all of you here this morning, as today we will be in chapter 3 in the Gospel of Mark, looking specifically this morning at verses 22 through 30, and considering the concept of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which comes up in the Gospel of Mark, church, right on the heels of Jesus Christ dealing with his fair share of opposition to his ministry. And I say that because, as we saw back at the start of chapter 3, that after Jesus Christ healed a man with a withered hand, the Pharisees, or the religious leaders of the day, they left the synagogue following this healing and immediately then met with a group of people called the Herodians in order to figure out a way, verse 6, how to destroy Jesus Christ. To which Jesus Christ then, as truly God and being fully aware of all of this, as Matthew chapter 12 points out, he goes then, as verse 7 puts it, out to the sea, or out to the sea of Galilee. However, as we also see in verse 7, a large crowd followed Jesus Christ out to the sea, large as in thousands upon thousands of people, church, followed Jesus Christ out to the sea in order to see and to experience for themselves the healings and the restoring, the cleansing and the curing of the miracle man himself, Jesus Christ. However, as Mark further shares in verse 10, the crowd on this day, church, they also pressed in on Jesus Christ in order to touch Jesus Christ so that, he could, that they could ultimately then be healed by Jesus Christ. So much so that it got to the point that Jesus Christ had to ask his disciples to get a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. And not only that, church, but also in the crowd on this day were individuals with unclean spirits or individuals who were demon-possessed, who were just falling down before Jesus Christ and crying out at Jesus Christ that you are the Son of God. And thus Jesus Christ, who was, is, and forevermore will be authoritative all over all the unclean and wicked and demonic spirits, he promptly tells them in verse 12 to not make him known. And then as we see in verse 13, Jesus Christ then decides to go up on a mountain and to call to himself his twelve apostles, whom he would train up in order to eventually send out to preach and to cast out demons on their own, or to put it another way, in order to further the reach of his ministry. Nevertheless, church, when Jesus Christ then finally returns back home after this strenuous and tiresome period of ministry, it says in verse 20 that upon his arrival that he did not even eat because yet another crowd of people just showed up where he was staying in order to see him. Therefore, it got to the point, church, that when members of Jesus' own family heard about him not eating, that they went, verse 21, out to seize him, because they were thinking, verse 21, that this man is out of his mind. In short, that he's gone absolutely nuts, and thus because of that, church, even 
even members of Jesus' own family now are seeking to oppose him. Which is a theme that we are not only going to see again today in our text, but it is a theme that we are going to see significantly heightened in our text today as well. Which takes us to our thesis statement this morning, church, or to the main theme of our message this morning, which is this. Jesus Christ is not in cahoots with Satan, but instead as the Son of God is more powerful than Satan and thus is able to bind the strong man Satan up. Jesus Christ is not in cahoots with Satan, but instead as the Son of God is more powerful than Satan and thus is able to bind the strong man Satan up. Therefore, at this time, church, let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. And if you are joining us today and do not have a Bible, then please feel free to grab and to keep, if you don't own one, one of our church Bibles, which are located in the chairs in front of you this morning. And you can feel free to begin reading your New Bible with us today by turning to page 838 and by joining us as we as a church family hear the word of God together this morning. For again, we are in Mark chapter 3 this morning and we'll be looking specifically at verses 22 through 30 where John Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. And he called them to him, and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his goods. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, quiet our minds and awaken our hearts this morning to receive your word. Father, it is an interesting text but I pray that through much humble research, study, and consideration, Father, that I honor you through the preaching of your word this morning, that I glorify you this morning and build up your saints who are here. Father, I pray that you open each one of these individuals who are here worshiping a holy God this morning Open their eyes to the beauty of this word, their ears to your word, and soften their hearts this morning to receive 
your word, to be comforted by your word, and if need be, to be convicted by your word as well. Father, I pray you send your Holy Spirit to do that. Father, I also ask for help this morning, the guidance of your Spirit. Give me the words to speak to this dear flock. Lord, I pray that they be humble words, but that they be confident words, not in my power or my sufficiency, but in the sufficiency of the infallible and errant and perfect Word of God that we are reading and studying this morning. Strengthen all of us here, Father, that through the preaching of your word, through the singing of songs and hymns and spiritual songs, through prayer, through offering, and through communion today, what we have to offer you is a pleasing sacrifice, fit for the King of the kingdom of God forever. Amen and amen. Our first of two points this morning, church, is this. Point number one, Jesus Christ is not in cahoots with Satan, but instead is the Son of God, is the binder of Satan. Jesus Christ is not in cahoots with Satan, but instead is the Son of God, is the binder of Satan. Verses 22 through 27, which reads, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So last week, church, Jesus' family, after hearing that he was not eating, or in essence not caring for his physical needs, They went out to seize him because, verse 21, they were saying, he is out of his mind. And next week, church, as we will see in verses 31 through 34, that storyline will continue. However, today, kind of sandwiched between those two scenes, if you will, Mark offers us a narrative about some scribes which seems to be inserted here, as numerous commentators have pointed out, in order to display a connection between some members of Jesus' family and the religious leaders of the day, both of whom at this time did not understand exactly who this Jesus Christ was, and thus because of that were content to oppose his ministry. So as we see in verse 22, church, some scribes, or some teachers of the law arrive on the scene. However, these aren't just any kind of scribes or teachers of the law, but the scribes that we are dealing with here are, verse 22, scribes 
from Jerusalem, meaning they are scribes who have come down from the Jewish capital of Jerusalem, which leads us to believe then, church as readers, that word about Jesus Christ and about his ministry has made its way all the way back to the religious bigwigs in Jerusalem at this time. However, these aforementioned scribes, church, they don't seem to be coming to Jesus Christ here on some 100-mile journey on foot in order to just introduce themselves or to become more acquainted with Jesus Christ. And I say that because it seems as though these scribes have already quite dogmatically made up their minds about Jesus Christ. For as we see in verse 22, church, they were already saying that he, Jesus Christ, is possessed by Beelzebub and that by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. Meaning that the scribes here have already concluded that this Jesus Christ, this man who has healed the sick, cured the ill, cleansed the leper, made the paralytic man walk, and who has casted out demon after demon, that in essence he is the one who is possessed by the head of demons, by Satan himself, church, and that it is by the power of Satan that Jesus Christ is able then to cast out demons. And thus because of those heretical allegations, church, Jesus Christ then, he calls these scribes over to himself and he says to them in parables, parables being a story or a saying that illustrates a particular truth or point, verses 23 through 26, which reads, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand what is coming to an end. And the point that Jesus is initially making here is that if any kingdom is divided against itself or splits up against itself, that kingdom then is not going to be able to stand. Nor will any household that is divided against itself or that seems to attack itself as well. And the same principle, church, it can be also be applied to any football team that tackles itself, any army that shoots itself, any boxer that punches himself, or any runner that trips himself. Because in each case, if any of them do that to themselves, they will never, ever, ever be able to stand, advance, prevail, or win. And thus, if Satan here really is the one empowering Jesus Christ to cast out demons, then Satan would ultimately be, verse 26, rising up against himself and thus setting himself up to lose, to fail, to fall, and to be destroyed, which as Jesus Christ is trying to point out here is just absolute illogical and irrational nonsense. Because what is actually taking place here, church, as Jesus Christ goes on to explain in verse 27, is that no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. So the strong man here, church, is obviously Satan. 
And his house here, church, seems to be his dominion here on earth. And his goods here, church, well, they seem to be the individuals who are demon-possessed and under his control. Now, logically speaking, if you want to take goods from a strong man's house, the first step in doing so is you've got to deal with the strong man first, i.e. you've got to bind him up or tie him up so that you can then be able to plunder his house. Therefore, what Jesus Christ is saying here is that he didn't come into this world, as James Edwards writes, to compromise or to coexist with Satan, but instead as the mighty one himself, he came to fulfill God's mission of invading and conquering the strong man named Satan. Consequently then, church, when Jesus Christ here goes around throughout the course of his ministry rebuking the unclean spirits and cleansing the possessed and casting out demons left and right, not only is that confirmation, church, that Jesus Christ is not in cahoots with Satan, or aligned with Satan, or being empowered by Satan, but also that he's broken into Satan's domain, bound him up, and is plundering him of his goods by setting those in his bondage free. And Jesus Christ can do that, church, because he, make no mistake about it, is the stronger man, sent by God as the Son of God, and empowered by the Spirit of God, and not by that of the devil. And thus, although Satan is strong Christian, and although his forces are strong, his influence is strong, his minions are strong, and the zeal of his followers to discredit the work of Jesus Christ is strong in this world as well. What we must never, ever, ever fail to forget, Christian, is that our God, our King, and our Lord Jesus Christ is even stronger, and he has, as has undoubtedly proven that to the world, church, by binding Satan up, by plundering him of his goods, and by eternally defeating him on that old rugged cross at Calvary, and by bringing forth a kingdom that will have no end, but instead will endure forever and ever and ever, and and thus all hail now and forevermore, church, the one with the power to defeat the works of the devil and to set the captives free. Our Lord, our Savior, and the stronger man himself, Jesus Christ. Which brings us to point number two. Which is this. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit is guilty of eternal sin. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit is guilty of eternal sin. Verses 28 through 30. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So again, church, we are right in the middle of this narrative where the scribes from Jerusalem have come down to Jesus Christ, accusing him of being, verse 22, possessed by Beelzebub, and implying that it is by the prince of demons that Jesus Christ is able to cast out demons. And Jesus Christ, who 
just got done pointing out to these supposed teachers of the law the absolute lunacy and absurdity and tomfoolery of those claims. Well, he doesn't stop there, church. But instead, he goes on to say to the scribes in verses 28 and 29, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. And Jesus Christ, he begins with the word truly, here in verse 28, as if to say, That what I am about to say here is absolutely trustworthy and right and accurate and true. And he can do that, church, because Jesus Christ, as the very Son of God, only speaks according to the perfect will of God. Nevertheless, Jesus Christ then says in verse 28, All sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. And let's just take a second here, church, to grasp just how comforting and reassuring and amazing and delightful that verse is. For again, it says in verse 28 that all sins will be forgiven the children of man, meaning that the sin of lust, church, is forgivable, and that the sin of anger, church, is forgivable, and that the sin of jealousy and murder and strife and adultery, church, are all forgivable, 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 and forgivable. And not only that, church, but as we also see in verse 28, whatever blasphemies we utter, for they too are forgivable as well. Blasphemies being, as R.C. Sproul writes, speaking a word against God, for it is a desecration of the holy character of God, where one insults him, mocks him, or dishonors him. In a sense, it is the opposite of praise, for even casually using the name of God in vain, as many do, constitutes as blasphemy. Nevertheless, Jesus Christ, he still says here in verse 28, as one who only speaks according to the very will of God, that even those who commit such blasphemous sins, which I am sure all of us have done, that they too can still be forgiven. However, as we then see in verse 29, there is, though, one sin that is excluded from all of this. That sin being, church, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, or what is commonly referred to as the unpardonable sin. And I can distinctly remember growing up as a little boy and this topic of the unpardonable sin coming up numerous times in different conversations at my church throughout the years. And I can remember well-intentioned Christians saying things like suicide. That suicide was the unpardonable sin because when you die, you can't repent of it. Or even well-intentioned Christians saying things like murder or adultery or witchcraft being the unpardonable sin. However, when you consider the circumstances of the text here, church, particularly who Jesus was addressing and what these aforementioned scribes were saying, that being that Jesus Christ was possessed by Satan and being empowered by Satan, the overall context then, church, seems to indicate that the unpardonable sin is most definitely not that of suicide. 
nor murder, nor adultery, nor witchcraft. But that instead, the unpardonable sin here, or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit here, is, as Andy Nassali writes, when someone decisively rejects clear, spirit-revealed truth about Jesus Christ by attributing his mighty works to Satan. For they decisively reject Jesus being they reject Jesus because they never repent. And they continue to rebel against Jesus until they die. In short, instead of submitting to who Jesus Christ is and recognizing that the Holy Spirit empowered his mighty works, they rebel against Jesus by declaring instead that Satan empowered his works. So in essence, church, the unpardonable sin isn't just some one-time, frustrated moment in your life when you explode and say something derogatory about the Holy Spirit, only to instantly then repent of it and seek to never do it again. But instead, to commit the unpardonable sin, church, is to get to the point when your heart becomes so hard and so callous and so obstinate toward Jesus Christ that despite all the evidence that the Holy Spirit puts in front of you, whether that be the preaching of the Word of God, the heralding of the Gospel of God, or even the sweet testimony of those who have been redeemed by God, that your permanent position then is to ignore all these promptings by the Holy Spirit and to be 100% content to ascribe the very work of Jesus Christ to the evil one himself. And thus, as William Hendrickson writes, that sin is unpardonable because those who do it will simply never tread the path that leads to forgiveness. Nevertheless, if you then, brother Christian, sister Christian, are sitting there this morning worrying or fretting, or anguishing in fear about you yourself having committed the unpardonable sin at some point in your life, then let me share with you this story. For as D.L. Moody writes, an aged minister believed that he had committed the unpardonable sin, and thus after much conflict, he submitted to what he mistakenly believed to be the will of God for him and his life that being to be condemned to hell forever. But then something within him whispered, suppose there is a hell for you. What would you, with your disposition and habits, do there? And the quick answer for him was, well, I would set up a prayer meeting. And with those words came the light of God to show him the absurdity of it all. For the fact that one fears that he has committed the unpardonable sin is sure proof that he most definitely has not. For again, brother Christian, sister Christian, if you are sitting there this morning worrying or fretting or anguishing in fear about you yourself having committed the unpardonable sin at some point in your life, then please, please, please do not any longer, Christian, let your heart be troubled because that worry, that concern, that anguish that you are feeling about committing this unpardonable sin, that is evidence, Christian, in and of itself that you have not committed it. And I say that because 
because the one who truly has committed this unpardonable sin, their heart has become so hard and so callous that quite frankly, Christian, they are not moved by this sin, convicted of this sin, and certainly will never seek to repent of this sin. Therefore, put your mind at ease this morning, Christian, concerning this unrepardonable sin, since it is a sin that the children of God cannot commit, do not commit, and will never, ever, ever commit, since the Spirit of God who has taken up residence in their heart will never allow them to commit such an eternally damning sin. And thus, as we close this morning, I'll begin by addressing the non-Christian who was here first. And non-Christian, I realize that you might be sitting there this morning now wondering if you have indeed committed this unpardonable sin. And thus at this point are now unsavable and will eternally be condemned to hell forever. However, non-Christian, if you are here this morning and can still hear the message that I am about to share with you and respond to that message and faith, then not only does that prove that you have not committed the unpardonable sin, but also that you have been forgiven of your sins and reconciled back to your holy God forever. And thus, that message, non-Christian, that I am pleading with you to respond to in faith this morning is this, for it is called the gospel of Jesus Christ where God himself, non-Christian, sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, into this world as truly God and as truly man in order to save sinners from their sins. And he, Jesus Christ, did that, non-Christian, by initially living for sinners the life that they could never live. And that although Jesus Christ came into this world and was tempted by sin, just like you and I, non-Christian, Jesus Christ he never sinned, but instead he perfectly fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law of God, and he did it, non-Christian, for the children of God. However, fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law of God for the children of God, that in and of itself was not enough to save sinners from their sins, because a price still needed to be paid on their behalf. A sacrifice still needed to be made, which is exactly non-Christian what Jesus Christ became by willingly taking our sins upon himself and by being crucified on a cross at Calvary and dying a sinner's death in our place and as our very substitute so that through his wounds, non-Christian, we could be healed. And thus being non-Christian, that God the Father then accepted Jesus Christ as the atoning sacrifice on our behalf. And furthermore being that sin and death then had absolutely no power over Jesus Christ. Since Jesus Christ never sinned three days later than non-Christian, Jesus Christ, he rose from the dead as the proof and as the receipt to the world that he had indeed defeated sin and destroyed eternal death once and for all and that he now can offer eternal life to all who place their trust in him. And thus let today 
be the day, non-Christian, that you turn from your sin. Let today be the day that you repent of your sin and you place your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sin, as the only one who paid the price for your sin and died for your sin and can clothe you then in his perfect life and reconcile you back to God forever. And thus, if your heart is still able to hear and receive and by faith respond to that gospel message that was just shared with you this morning, non-Christian, then you can still eternally be saved. Therefore, to the one who can hear this morning, let him hear, repent, and place your faith in Jesus Christ. And today will be the day that you are forgiven of your sins and given the gift of eternal and abundant life. And to the Christian who is here today, brother Christian, sister Christian, whenever this topic of the unpardonable sin comes up, a lot of times it ends up snowballing a bit and causes Christians to begin to question or to doubt or to wonder about the assurance of their salvation. For it is a topic of conversation that I have had in counseling before with individuals who were distraught and distressed and mentally just in absolute anguish searching for something, for anything that will ease their anxiety and let them know that they will not be condemned to hell forever. And quite frankly, church, it is not a fun place to be as a pastoral counselor. And in reading this text this week, over and over and over again. I can fully admit that Satan, that he is a strong man, and that in my own power, church, and that in my own might, and that in my own wisdom, and guidance, and thoughtfulness, and advice, that Satan, that he has got me beat if I rely solely on myself as a pastoral counselor. And that's one of the things that I've been really convicted of this week in reading this text, church, is that if you want to bring comfort to someone who is struggling with the assurance of their salvation or who is worrying if they have indeed committed the unpardonable sin, then you do not point them, church, to individuals who are still dead in their sins, who still love this world, and who still listen to the father of lies. But instead, you point them to the one who bound up the strong man, who plundered the strong man, and who conquered, defeated, and crushed the strong man, that being the stronger man himself, Jesus Christ. And thus, if you are struggling, then At all this morning, brother Christian, sister Christian, with the assurance of your salvation, or if you are still worried that somehow, someway, you committed the unpardonable sin, then do not go anywhere near the intellectual who will tell you that there is no such thing as sin, or anywhere near the counselor who will tell you that you just need to do what is best for you, or anywhere near the spiritual heretics who are out there today who will tell you that there are many ways to get right with God. But instead, if you are struggling with the assurance of eternal life, then you must, Christian, one, run to the one who is the source of eternal 
eternal life, the giver of eternal life, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who made it crystal clear to his bride church that all that the Father gives to him will come to him, and that everyone who comes to him, he will never cast out, but instead will raise them up on the last day, because whoever believes in him, church, will not perish, but instead will receive everlasting life. For that is the source and the truth, church, that we must run to and cling to and let wash over us time and time again, anytime we begin to doubt the assurance of our salvation. Because although the devil is strong, church, the one who purchased you with his own blood is even stronger and thus will never, ever, ever allow the devil to snatch you out of his hands since Jesus Christ is the one who does the binding and the plundering around here, church, and not that of the devil. And thus it is my prayer that if anyone here is weary this morning or fearful, Father, about the assurance of their salvation, then let them not run to the world for the peace that they are looking for, but instead let them run to the only one who can bind their wounds, ease their consciences, and give them peace and his most holy name. For let them run to the only mediator between God and man, the Son of God himself, Jesus Christ, who has already authoritatively declared to the world that whoever believes in him will not perish, but instead will have eternal life. And thus let us, as the children of God, when we are weary and discouraged and doubtful and full of despair concerning our salvation, only look to the one who has bound the strong man up, plundered him of his goods, defeated him eternally on that cross of Calvary, and who has set the captives free. And let that accomplishment of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be the balm that gives peace, comfort, and strength to our souls until the day our faith in the stronger man, Jesus Christ himself, becomes eternal sight. Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, how easy and quick it is to lose sight of the fact as we look around this world and see media and friends and family and Facebook and this, that, and the other call Jesus Christ a lunatic, a loon, a liar, a fable. Father, and then yet we run to these same people to give us peace instead of running to the stronger man, to Jesus Christ himself, the one who has defeated evil, who has defeated Satan. For he is our peace. In his wounds we are healed. Father, if any of my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning are struggling with the assurance of their salvation, are struggling with whether they have committed this unpardonable sin or not, Father, drive them to your Son. Let them wash over his words time and time again. 
Let them read your word, meditate on your word, study your word so that they can be transformed by your word. Drive your children who are struggling this morning with assurance of salvation to your son, Father, we pray, and let him be a wonderful comfort, peace, and balm to their soul now and forevermore. Amen.